at some point, you've probably migrated an app from one framework or made your runtime version to another. For example, Django to Flask, Python 2 to 3, or even Angular to Vue.js. This can be a big challenge. If you had hundreds of active devs and millions of lines of code, it's a huge challenge. We have Ben Barito from Yelp here to recount their story of moving 3.8 million lines of code from Python 2 to 3. But this is not just a 2 to 3 story. It has many lessons on how to migrate code in many situations. There are plenty of gems to take from his experience. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 401, recorded January 18th, 2023. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at TalkPython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Cox Automotive. Join their team and use your technical skills to transform the way the world buys, sells, and owns cars. Find an exciting position that's right for you at talkpython.fm slash Cox. And it's also brought to you by User Interviews. Earn extra income for sharing your software development opinion at User Interviews. Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. Ben, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. We're going to talk a little bit of legacy code, a little bit of very, very large code bases, and how you might not have to permanently live in the past, which I think would be really welcome to a lot of people. I just talked a little bit about this before I hit record, but I, I, even though your topic is specifically how the story of moved from Python 2 to 3, and this, like making your whole code base modern, I do think that this idea of how do I move from one code base to another code base is super relevant to lots of folks who might not be going from Python 2 to 3, but maybe from Flask to Fast API or vice versa, or those types of things. So I think this, the techniques that you're going to talk about here are more broadly applicable than just a, a 2 to 3 migration. And it's really cool how you, you all migrated 3.8 million lines of code without interrupting development. That's kind of nuts. Yeah, it's, uh, I did it and it still seems ridiculous. You lived it and it seems like a dream. Amazing. Before we get to all that though, let's start with your story. How'd you get into programming and Python? Took a job at Yelp. Yelp was a Python shop. Before that, I had a couple internships and I went to Georgia Tech and I mostly did Java. So it was sort of a new experience for me. I, you know, Python was, is one of those like beginner languages that everyone loves to throw around. So, um, so I had done, you know, I dabbled in a little bit, but but I first started really getting like deep into the language at, when I started it at Yelp. And I've definitely made it, it's sort of become like, I've become sort of a local expert on it. So I've been able to build up a lot of knowledge about like, you know, a lot of weird edge cases and, you know, stuff like that. So you may be familiar with it. There's a, a t-shirt that's kind of a joke, a meme. It says, I learned Python. It was a great weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and yet... I've been doing Python for many years and I'm still learning new stuff. Even today, I learned uh, some interesting new Python things. So which is it? Do you learn it in a day or is it like a, this deep journey? I think most pro programming languages have some amount of, you know, 
width and depth. I think, you know, Python definitely has the advantage of being, you know, a relatively straightforward language. One of the nice things, obviously, is that like, instead of using a lot of weird keywords, it has like, you know, words, like, you know, instead of being like, oh, like, like, or double pipe. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or instead of double pipe and stuff like that, like those are the things that I think, I think definitely help people personally, you know, me coming into it, it was, that wasn't like as big of a deal for me. Cause like, I was already familiar with all that stuff, but like yeah, you were, you were coming from a very symbol heavy world of Java, which is not as yeah. symbol heavy as C plus plus, but it's got a lot of abstractions in what it builds for sure. Yeah. I will say like, I think there are certain things that Python does. I, I will say Python is not, is not like a perfect language by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. but I will say one thing about Python that I think is really cool is it did sort of before many other languages managed to integrate a lot of like functional paradigms, like list comprehensions or comprehensions in general are, I think one of those features where it's just like, this doesn't exist in a lot of other sort of more popular languages and they're yeah. really, really fluent and powerful in a way that mm -hmm. like is it, you kind of miss when you don't have it. Right. And so like, I think that's something that's really cool about Python, but Python itself, you know, being, being a language with the legacy that it has, you know, I mean, we're going to be talking about the two to three differences, which have their own nuances to them, but like, it's always going to have some weirdnesses to it. And some of those things are like, just like, oh, someone made a decision, you know, 30 years ago that like still kind of reverberates today. And, and so that means that like, it has this depth to it. You know, you, you have to yeah. you know, really learn the depth in order to fully understand all of the problems that exist, like dealing with not necessarily problems with the language, but like, you know, when you're building software, you run into problems that you have to solve. Right. And so that's like the main, I think that's, that's true of all languages to an extent, especially, you know, popular ones and older ones. But yeah, I, I do think that Python more than a lot of languages really is able to straddle the line of like being like, oh, it's approachable, but also you can do a lot of, you know, really interesting and powerful stuff with it. Yeah. You compare that with like Java, Java, you've got to understand functions. You've got to understand classes, mm -hmm. possibly namespaces, like, like just to write the first line of code. Whereas Python, you can work with it for like, you know what, this is really clumsy to repeat this. Maybe I'll learn what a function is and then I can start using that, but you don't know what a class is. You don't care about it. You, know, you kind of like slowly layer on the stuff as you need it rather than you've got to jump in and, and go with it all at once. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, interesting. So you're still at Yelp? I yes. Presume. Yeah. And I'm in our, uh, in a conference room in our San Francisco office right now. Excellent. And what are you doing there? So I work on a team that's called Core Services. Our team is responsible for a lot of infrastructure, mostly Python focused, though not exclusively. We do a lot of our sort of like internal Python infrastructure. So, you know, we'll be, we'll be responsible for making sure that we can upgrade to new Python versions. We've got, we, on our internal PyPI, we recently, this is a cool thing that has happened since my talk. So I didn't mention it is, um, we recently built a system to automatically import certain packages from a public PyPI and that has saved us some headaches. And then we own some other stuff like, you know, we've dealt a lot with sort of this, the general service contract at Yelp. So like being like, okay, what, what does it mean to be a service? How do you, how do you be a good citizen there? And a lot of other things like testing tools, a lot of like, sort of like, oh, I need to test against multiple services. We have a testing tool that like automates a lot of the steps to like sort of get those all connected together so you can test against them. Yeah. It sounds like a really fun set of tasks you're doing there. So you said you have an internal, uh, we're going to dive into the code and stuff, um, all this whole migration, but, you know, kind of sidebar, like you said, you have this internal private PyPI server. 
what's the details around that? Like how, obviously you're whitelisting things that can be brought inside saying we're going to put those onto our server and you can like request and you can choose when to let the new one in and so on. But you know, what's the, what's the software and how do you put that together? Right. A number of years ago now, we switched to a piece of software that I don't think is used pretty much anywhere else, which was built by uh, one of my teammates who named uh, Chris Keel. So Chris Keel built essentially a PyPI implementation uh, called Dumb PyPI. Uh, it's, <laughs> called, it's called Dumb PyPI because unlike some other PyPI servers, the way that it works is you just sort of give it a list of distributions and then it just generates all of the HTML pages. So instead of, instead of being like, oh, I'm a server and I'm like, you know, going to handle this request and blah, 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 and like run some code. It's literally like, okay, here are the HTML pages. And I see it's like a, like a static site generator for a PyPI backend. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been using that for a really long time and maybe like four or five years now. And it's, you know, it served us pretty well. It's really nice in my opinion, because it's the only service that my team actually owns. So, it, and it never pages us. So that's great. I love that it never pages us. <laughs> it can't go down. Yeah. <laughs> Not really. It's, well, it can't, it wouldn't be good that if, go to, if it goes down, but also it doesn't. That's the great yeah. part is it just, it just doesn't. So Chris's, uh, Chris's software works great. Yeah. Uh, that's a really cool idea. And so you tell it certain versions or, or do you just limit it to the libraries and let it pick the latest versions of whatever's on real PyPI? So the way that we do it is we have a whole system which like imports packages. We actually rebuild all of our wheels. It's kind of for kind of hard to explain reasons. So what we'll do is we'll like, someone will say, hey, I want this version of this package. Or maybe they'll just say, hey, I want this package. And then we'll just pull down the newest one at the time. And we'll do some like security betting on it. So we have some like automated security stuff and basically just make sure that it's like not malicious. And then we build the wheels and then we upload those to the S3 bucket that like backs our PyPI. Right. So we just do that. In terms of like how we decide, it's basically just sort of like we, you know, make sure, you know, we do the security check. We do like, uh, there's a few other things. Like we make sure we have all the dependencies. We make sure we have uh, that it has like a license that we're okay with, with using internally. And so all of those things are checked. And then we have, as I mentioned, we have this sort of like automated import system. So like certain packages, we'll just, we'll try to download them. They might fail, you know, one of those checks and then we won't upload it, but like, you know, so we'll just like import it, we'll try to import it. And, and so certain packages, we'll try to get the newest one. Some packages, you know, have, we haven't set that up for one reason or another. Some packages, there's certain packages that are just like difficult to build. And so we avoid importing them. Right. You're just, we got this one working. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so like some are difficult to build. Some are just like, oh, this is a package we've never used before. So we just like don't use it. Yeah. So, or we don't have it. Yeah. You talked about how many dependencies your projects have and stuff and that, that'll be fun. But let's maybe take a step back and just talk about, you know, Python at, at Yelp, you this main project that you have. It was running on Python 2. It's kind of obvious, but some of the reasons are obvious, some are not. Like, why did you care what version of Python it's on? That's a good question. I mean, I think the main reason was just sort of like we saw the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall was the end of life for Python 2, right? And I think everyone else, we knew that other people were going to follow that, right? There was, I remember in 2019 when I was looking into this, there was a thing, I think it was called like the Python pledge or something like that, where basically like packages would 
like open source packages would say like, Hey, we're going to drop Python three, you know, after end of life at some, like, you know, either the day of, or, or a few months later or something like that. And so we were sort of looking at that and being like, well, we use some of those packages, you know, and eventually we might want to upgrade them. Yeah. You're about to get frozen in time around mid 2020. So, uh, you're, you maybe don't want that. (laughs) By the time that I did my, my talk, I remember, I think it was early 2021 or something, you know, PIP had dropped support for Python two. So that was like one of those things where it was just sort of like, yeah, there's not, there's not a realistic ecosystem in which you are able to use like open source and upgrade your stuff, you know, for security patches or whatever, you know, I want this new feature. Oh, sorry, that's Python three only, you know, kind of thing. So that was like the main motivation. Right. And then I think some secondary stuff was just sort of like, as you build, you know, as time marches on and like people stop being familiar with like Python two, and it has some quirks, you know, compared to Python three. You definitely have the problem of like, okay, now you have to like, if you're hiring people and they're working on Python 2, you have to train them up on those quirks in a way that like you wouldn't necessarily have to do if you're using a modern language that other places are using. And so those are the, I think the main motivations. Personally, I think I had like a small motivation myself, which was just sort of like, I hate seeing things like be left behind like this, you know? (laughs) Yeah, sure. A very emotional thing, but yeah. Yeah, that's part of the reason I, I push for it. Well, there's the train thing. I mean, there's obviously the, just the infrastructure stopping and stopping the updates. But there's the training side of helping people who are new come. But there's also the how do you hire the very best engineers? It's really hard to get an amazing Python engineer to come and say, you're going to do amazing work from 2008. You're going to love yeah. it. You know what I mean, right? Like yeah. if they're working on some new package that they're inspired about, instead of trying to bring that in and like, you know, help make that better and also boost what you're doing. It's like, well, we can't use that because that you only do it in Python 3. Like, well, of course I created it this, you know, two years ago. Why wouldn't it be Python 3 only? And there's a lot of knock-on effects like that, right? Yeah. Did you see the performance stuff from 2.11 or even from 2, oh, sorry, 2.11, 3.11 or even 3.10 where, where you're like, you know, there might actually be uh, fewer servers as well if we do this? That's definitely something that we are, you know, we want to do. That specific issue is something that we're we're sort of we're trying to move towards being able to use the those versions of Python right now. Uh, it's always a process just because of various you know internal yeah. things, but it's definitely something that has been that has been talked about. Is we're like, yeah, if we could use new versions of Python, maybe things will be faster, things will be more efficient. Trying not to spend too much money is definitely a thing that we uh, we think about. So that's definitely exciting. Yeah. When I did the episode on 3.11, we talked a lot about the performance there. And it's it's impressive. It's, you know, 40, 50, 60%. And I won't steal your thunder. I know at the end, you've got some nice performance boosts that you got even from the change that you made. But there was somebody in the audience that pointed out, like, not only is this faster, which is nice for us, right? It's nice that we have to pay less for servers. or It's nice that our code runs a little bit faster. But it's also good for the planet, right? If we just all start using newer, faster foundations, then necessarily we just use less energy to do the same thing that we're already doing, right? Yeah, that's definitely, uh, I like that. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Cox Automotive. With brands like Kelly Blue Book, AutoTrader, Dealer.com, and more, Cox Automotive flips the script on how we buy, sell, own, and use our cars. And now the team at Cox Automotive is looking for software engineers, data scientists, scrum masters, and other tech experts to help create meaningful change in the industry. 
Do you want to be part of a collaborative workplace that values your time and work-life balance? Consider joining Cox Automotive. Visit talkpython.fm slash cox today. Thank you to Cox Automotive for sponsoring the show. Let's talk about Python at Yelp. So you've You've got this repo, this this big project called Yelp Main. Let's start there. Sure. Yelp Main is what it sounds like. It is sort of the original repo at Yelp. That's when you're a startup in 2004, you you kind of just make a repo, right? Mm-hmm. And it's your web app. And that's- You probably made a subversion repo. Because it was, none, was, none of that CVS stuff. We're doing subversion. I don't was, remember when we switched from subversion, but we it was subversion. I don't know. I don't know if it was before, so I don't know if we actually started out in Subversion, but okay. uh, I didn't start until uh, 2014. Sure. But yeah, it's definitely, Subversion was, I know it was, there was some old Subversion stuff, but so you have this one, you know, sort of web app and the web app is a server that serves, that originally served everything. So, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that, like, you know, you can sort of think of as like Yelp.com, right? Like if you, if you go to www.yelp.com, then you're, you're looking at what you think of as Yelp, right? Is like, right, oh, right. I can search for businesses. I can look at their reviews. I can write my own reviews, that kind of stuff. So it's that, but it's also other stuff. It's also our business owner site. So biz.yelp.com, which is where business owners like look at their own businesses and like are able to mm-hmm. see the metrics and like, you know, buy ads and stuff like that. There's our admin site, which is, you know, where a lot of Anybody, we have our sort of user operations people whose whose job is at least partially to do some moderation and, and stuff like that. So like we need to be able to have those tools. And then there's also what we call, intern, call internal API. And internal API is a way for internal stuff to get the data that's in Yelp main. So that's what that is. And that's like its own separate sort of site. And, but these are all in the same repo. They all run in the same process. That's, and yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to ask, is this kind of the, the mono repo style or it's, it's truly a monolith in the sense that it's kind of all the same app? It's truly a monolith. There is some amount of stuff where it's like, oh, we have like different containers running like different entry points, but mm-hmm. like the code is all kind of tangled up together. So there's not really a meaningful delineation between different components in a way that you could really separate them out in any meaningful way. Yeah. So like my understanding of like what I would define as a monorepo, I wouldn't really call it that. I would just call it, I would call it's it just, just a large app. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge, yeah. huge, huge app, huge repo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in your talk, you said that you have six different sites with 2000 different endpoints, Yeah, which it's a lot. I don't think it's completely excessive or anything like 2000 URL endpoints for, for all those different services and like all those different admin apps. It seems it's a lot, but it's not insane. And then you have these background batch services. Mm-hmm. What, what's the story of those? It's just sort of anything that you need done. As I said, this was just sort of like, this is the one repo, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things that you want done that aren't necessarily done in the context of a web request or don't make sense to do synchronously. So a lot of that is just sort of like, okay, you know, I need to like do this like really complex report or something, right? You know, I want to get some metrics that like involve collating a bunch of data doing a bunch of joins against a bunch of tables. Okay, well, I'm not going to have just like a web request do that. I'm going to put that in like a separate process. And we originally, as you can imagine, for that type of application, we just called them those batches. Yeah. Like a, patch, a batch job, right? 
that name has stuck despite the fact that now batches don't necessarily do that type of work. They're just sort of anything that you want to do in the background. Right. And that could be something like, oh, uh, the first of the month we do our like ad billing or we might have some process where it's just sort of like, oh, we want to like update this cache you know, based on like data, like stuff, but we don't want to do it in line in a, in a web request. We can do it asynchronously. And it's, so it's really anything that is not in the context of a web request. Mm -hmm. I suspect most major apps, most companies have that kind of stuff too, right? They've, they've got to. I mean, everyone has some version of it, whether or not they, they do it exactly the way that we do it is a separate question that I'm not really sure, but. Yeah. I think part of the story is, do you deploy them all out of the same code base mm -hmm. or are they you know, a bunch of different jobs and, and repos or how's that fit together? That's probably where the, it varies. Yeah. I mean, for us, we have, I mean, I said 800 batches and I was referring to specifically to the batches that are still in the Yelp main repo. And like I said, all these things are kind of tangled together. So it's not like, oh, you can just like pull a batch out. Like that's like talking <laughs> about like, well, how, how do you get the data that it needs? And, and right. like, what does that look like? And blah, blah, blah. Now, so how does it get the data access layer and how does it get a hold of the logging thing that's over here and this and all that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. So okay. like, so there's 800 batches, but we also have tons and tons of batches that are in services. So they live in okay. service repos and they run and they're, they're in totally separate code base. I don't know what that number is. I'd have to yeah. figure it out. Yeah. It's definitely a lot. It's probably, it's almost certainly more than they, than we have in Yelp main at this point, but that paradigm exists all over Yelp and not just in this repo. Yeah. Well, I think these are a lot of value to having that code together, right? If you break this out into a whole bunch of different repos, you've got dependency management, versioning, deployment, like there is some value to just saying like, just let it live together. We'll upgrade it together. But it it does make for some striking headlines when you talk about how many lines of code got upgraded at once, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're talking about like, why do we solve them all if the answer is mostly just because it's really hard to not have one once you have one you have to do all the work to move it out. And there are disadvantages. Like you said, it's sort of like, okay, now as soon as you have a new repo, it has its own set of dependencies that you have to keep up to date and you know you have to do other sort of maintenance on it. Generally speaking, we consider that better though still because it's sort of like, it's always better. Like imagine if I'm in, in this giant monolith and I'm like, oh, I need to upgrade this package. And it's like, okay, well, you want to do a major upgrade and this package is imported in a thousand places. Now you need right. to deal with that migration. Whereas if it's like, oh, I'm in my service and this, and then I need to do this package upgrade and it's imported in 10 places, that's like an afternoon <laughs> instead of like, you know, a, a quarter a of a year or something, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's definitely advantages to that. It does add, it's sort of like more work overall, but you can do it in a more granular way. So it allows you to unblock people faster, essentially. So like, yeah. we definitely want to move away from the monolith and we have been doing that. Like compared to when I started at Yelp, we have way, way less code that is important running in Yelp main. There is still a ton that's important in there. Like I mentioned in my talk, like almost inevitably someone has to like call into an internal API to get our, get data out of it. So that's something that like, we definitely want to fix at some point, but it is a process. And that process is generally speaking, like we're getting to a point where like some people who work at Yelp don't really work in Yelp main anymore. Like they just don't have to deal with it, especially not on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Sure. And you mentioned in your talk, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, but you gave a talk at PyCon 2022, which is definitely was a very popular one and highlights some of these things there as well. So I'll be sure to link to that so people can check it out. And you talk about people developing in Yelp main, some of them not, but there's still 
a lot happening there. You said 20 pushes a day, 800 simultaneous develop, uh, developers. And um, yeah, that's, that's no joke. That's a lot of traffic on a repo. Yeah. I think since I did that talk where we've been going, we've been trending down in terms of number of changes per day, but it would still probably close like somewhere in the eight, like 15 to 25 a day. So it's less like that's an appreciable percentage less, but it's still a lot of changes per day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you also said you have 700 Python package dependencies. We talked about the private PyPI. Mm-hmm. So when you say you have 700 dependencies, that's if I go into the virtual environment and type, you know, pip list, I see 700 things. Yep. Okay. It's a lot. It's a lot. It was an ordeal dealing with that. <laughs> Especially coming from a long time ago until present, right? In terms of code, mm-hmm. uh, code compatibility, right? Some of those things you depended on, maybe their new versions have moved to Python 3, but maybe with breaking changes. Others, they might just not have a Python 3 version. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how'd you deal with that? There were basically, in terms of like open source stuff, there were basically like three ways that we dealt with that. So one is just like upgrade and like deal with whatever the upgrade entails. We didn't, I don't think we really ran into any issues where we were like, oh no, we have to do this like massive breaking change, you know, migration. That wasn't really a problem that we ran into, thankfully. So a lot of those were just sort of like figuring out what packages need to be upgraded and just like sort of doing the upgrade, making sure that they test pass and that kind of stuff. So that wasn't too bad. The other one, which was a little bit more annoying was like you said, some packages just stopped updating before they got uh, Python 3 support and we were relying on them. So we had to be like, okay, well, can we replace these with something that, you know, fix them? And there were a few examples of packages where it sort of stopped getting development and then someone was like, oh, that I see where the problem lies. That's a problem for me. So I'm going to fix that. And so luckily a lot of people had already done that work and they, there were like forks or, yeah. or sort of drop-in replacements some, sometimes not exactly drop-in replacements, but like, you know, close enough that we could like do do the small amount of work that was needed. It's one of the advantages of being a little bit later to the party is let other yes. people bump into those problems and maybe they fix them for you, right? That probably yeah. happened most of the time, honestly. That was definitely a good chunk of the time. I couldn't tell you, I'd have to like go back and like run the numbers on like what percentage of time that was. But like, yeah. we definitely, yeah, there was definitely a good chunk of things where we're just sort of like, oh, someone already made the fork or whatever. And, and we can just use that. And, and that was, that was nice. Right. It was, okay, that's, that's, you know, that one checked off. And then the final sort of grouping was stuff where there was, that wasn't available. So it was like, oh, this package is Python 2 only and no one ever made a replacement. So we need to deal with that. Luckily, we, none of those were in a position where we were completely unable to deal with it. Like there, we didn't run into anything where we were like, oh, this is just like, this is like a blocker. But there were things where we were like, oh, this thing needs to be replaced with something else that does something similar or maybe right, right away. Like very often we ran into code where it was like, oh, this is using this thing. And then you start looking into it and you're like, oh, actually this code is like this like branch or whatever that uses this package isn't actually used anymore so we can just delete all that code and like not have to think about it so that's that's uh, how we dealt with it yeah that's a nice way to upgrade it is just get rid of it yes were there any packages that you're out there that didn't have python 3 support and you're like yeah, really we really depend on this one that you upgraded and, and contributed back or there, were you able to just move on there was nothing that we ran into that was like an absolute blocker like that so we didn't end up contributing anything in terms of open source, other than there were some packages 
that are like on our GitHub, like the Yelp GitHub that we did do upgrades for. Sure. So that was, you know, that was the only sort of open source work that we, I think we really ended up doing. Yeah. So luckily, I mean, I don't know if this is lucky or not, but it's definitely, uh, it happened so that we didn't have to do that. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it would be nice if you ran across that and, and helped it solve it for someone, but if you don't have to, even better. Testing. One of the challenges of, well, first, it's good to have tests, but one of the challenges of, of these upgrades is you wanted to do this without disrupting development. You wanted to keep adding new features. You didn't want to say, hey, everyone, stop making any progress or, or bug fixes for six months, and we're all just going to do this until we're done. All right? You wanted to keep it moving. But in order to do so, you got to run the test because you're making wholesale changes to millions of lines of code. So that's pretty nerve wracking, right? And you're swapping out its dependencies in, in big ways. And yet running tests, you all have a lot of tests and they take a while to run, right? Yeah, we have about 100,000 tests in Yelp main, a little under. And yeah, if you were to run them serially, at least when I wrote my talk, it was about 35 hours total. But we have a test runner framework um, called Jolt that we run internally. And what it does is it basically like puts those tests up into bundles and then runs those on across a bunch of machines. And so you're basically able to get a all of the tests run for Yelp main in about give or take an hour and a half. Okay. That's pretty good for running 100,000 tests. That's still a long time to have a test run though, right? So you yeah. probably need it. You can't just get immediate feedback. Minor change, how'd that go? Minor change, how'd that go? You kind of gonna be a little more thoughtful than that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of, and this sort of gets into like testing theory, is that like you start to get an idea of like what changes are like affect what other things. Like sometimes you're not, you're not gonna have a perfect idea but like, if you're like, oh, this is a thing that just affects everything, then you're going to run all the tests. But we did have the ability to run tests. If we were like, okay, we want to just run tests under Python 3, we could do like, oh, I'm just going to run this, you know, test module under Python right. 3. I can do that. And so like, if you were literally just like, oh, I'm checking, I'm like fixing this test under Python 3, then you could just do that. You could just be like, oh, I'm, I'm iterating very quickly by like changing the code and then running the test under Python 3. And then, you know, oh, it passes. Okay, let me double check it passes under Python 2 as well. And then you can commit that and then like put that into PR. And then we do require, so one of the things is we do require running all, doing a full Jolt run for every pull request to Yelme. So in order to do, so you have to run that anyway, but like while you're waiting for that to run, you can work on something else. Sure. And you're yeah, really you, high confidence. That you run a couple, okay, that makes sense. So run a couple of local tests, 10, 100, 500, whatever. Mm -hmm. Once you're happy with that, then you put it as a PR and CI figures out what happens. Yeah. Okay. And I think that ultimately, like there, when we were really early on, we were working on like the really foundational stuff, but that was like the causing the most issues. That was the time when we we're like, oh, we really got to run all the tests. But once you get down to the nitty gritty pretty early mm -hmm. on, actually, yeah. you really don't need to think about how it affects other things. Like it's mostly just sort of like, yeah, you know, this module affects its own tests and that's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure you get a feel for it over time. You're like, these are the kinds of far-reaching changes and these are the kinds of things I can stay really focused on. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by User Interviews. As a developer, how often do you find yourself talking back to products and services that you use? Sometimes it may be frustration over how it's working poorly and if they just did such and such, it would work better, and it's easy to do. Other times, it might be delight. Wow, they auto-filled that section for me. How did they even do that? Wonderful. Thanks. 
While this verbalization might be great to get the thoughts out of your head, did you know that you can earn money for your feedback on real products? User Interviews connects researchers with professionals that want to participate in research studies. There is a high demand for developers to share their opinions on products being created for developers. Aside from the extra cash, you'll talk to people building products in your space. You will not only learn about new tools being created, but you'll also shape the future of the products that we all use. It's completely free to sign up and you can apply to your first study in under five minutes. The average study pays over $60. However, many studies specifically interested in developers pay several hundreds of dollars for a one-on-one interview. Are you ready to earn extra income from sharing your expert opinion? Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to user interviews for supporting the show. The other requirement you said that you had was that any changes must be rollback safe. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? I'm thinking like database migrations or, or that, that, right? What do you think in here? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think database migrations are a good example of that type of thing. We didn't really run into a situation where we actually had to do any schema changes to databases, although there was a thing where we had to do, we had to make some, some changes to some data such that it would be parsed properly under both. Python two and three, but yeah, what you always want to do is you want to say like, okay, if I undo this later, maybe like a week later, someone realizes, oh, this change made a problem, has a problem. We don't want to be in this business where we say, oh, we can't undo that. Something else, you know, it depends on it and we can't, we can't undo it. And so that was like a main thing. It was just sort of like, don't do these things where you're just sort of like, oh, well, once we do this, we can't go back. Like, no, don't do that. Right. If you need to like do some extra work where you like build up scaffolding or whatever, then like do that work instead. And it might take a little bit longer in the in the in the long run, but it makes us have less risk. Yeah, I'll, I'll save diving into this for later in our conversation. But one of the things that you were able to do because of that is you were able to run apps simultaneously in two and three and use uh, URL reverse proxy like Nginx or something to say this part of the the web app runs Python three, and this one over here run, is running Python two, and and, and filter the traffic and switch it based on how it's performing or behaving. If it goes wrong, you can switch it back quick. If you didn't have that compatibility, it would be like, all right, today we pull the switch, chunk, and then like you deal with the consequences for how long Yelp is down, right? So that's an interesting consequence of this idea that it should be able to be rollbackable. You can actually run both versions and then sort of migrate more cautiously. Yeah. You had a, a cool picture, and let me put it on the screen for us here, where you talked about the four different steps, the phases and timelines, and how much time you spent in, in there. Want to talk us through this? Yeah, sure. So this is just sort of like, if you want to think about, okay, you've got some Python 2 code, and you want it to get it to Python 3. It's very easy to think about it in a sort of atomic way, as you just sort of like, oh, make it Python Python 3 compatible. And it's like, okay, yeah. makes sense on small stuff. You know, if you're like, oh, I got my 500 lines back and I'm going to migrate to Python 3 today, you know, but on big stuff, uh, when you're talking about millions of lines of code, you want to think about it in terms of, in sort of level of compatibility. And so the three levels that we had to deal with here were parsability, which basically just means if you try and run this module with Python 3, will it fail with a syntax error or not? Okay. And so that's the main thing. And parsability, it turns out, is pretty easy to fix because there were not a lot, huge number of syntax changes. 
and they're pretty easy to detect and fix in an automated way. Yeah, did you use some tooling like PyUpgrade or any we of used, those types of things? PyUpgrade we used a little bit. It's not super designed for this, but there was a one specific thing that was really nice about it, which is that it could detect octal literals. So if you put like zero and then a number that's an octal literal in Python 2, that's not allowed in Python 3, so you have to do zero O number. And it was able to detect those really easily and like fix them, which was really nice. Those things, like it sounds like, oh, well, that's not that much work or that much help. But when you're doing it across millions of lines of code, anything you can automate, it's got to yeah. be really welcome, right? There's a relatively common pattern. The reason that I remember that one is there was a relatively common pattern where like people would create like daytime objects and then they would write year, month, day. And if the month or a year was single digit, they would prefix it with a zero which works in Python too. Hmm. They probably didn't mean to make it octal, but that's what they did. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of worked. And so people, and so that, that existed in a lot of places and it was like a popular pattern, but, but yeah, so, so PyUpgrade was useful in that way. It was useful later on when we were like, like blowing away all the sick stuff because it's, is able to fix all of those things automatically, which is nice or most of them, but Python modernized was mo where, where a lot of, most of our automation went because it could fix a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that was parsability and portability is similar is that you try to import it and then you say, you say like, okay, this is failing with an import error, like, or something is making it fail to import, like usually running yeah. code at the top level. And that was a little bit longer. A lot of that was fixing standard lib imports. You make making most of those use six gyms. If they change, you, there's a six gym for that. And then some of it was also upgrading the packages so they could be used under um, Python 3 and like imported. But there was a little bit of like top level stuff where it was like, oh, this like top level thing is like calling like dict.iteritems or something and you got to fix that. Yeah. yeah. So that's that probably gets maybe a little into the functional parity, which if people look at your talk, they'll see there's, couple weeks of the parsability, maybe a month or two of the importability, then a whole bunch of the functional parity. And it reminds me of when I was learning C++ way, way, way back. And I got really excited because I finally got some complicated code to compile. Mm -hmm. Not really knowing like, oh, no, 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 no. You're only at the beginning of figuring out what's wrong with this. The compile is the part where it shows you what's wrong. Now it's like the mystery tour. And like, this is after that, right? This is like kind of once you get past parsing and importing, then you're into the, how are they different behaviorally? Yeah, and this is, it's just sort of like, I, I alluded to this earlier, but basically the idea of you run all of your tests. And luckily we had already built up a lot of infrastructure that was really useful to us. So one of the things that Jolt that was able to do is it was able to do some like normalization of like tracebacks and then be like, oh, these tracebacks are like similar enough that I'm going to group them together as like a single error. And say like, oh, this many tests are failing with this sort of traceback. Okay. That was really useful because it was, we were able to just sort of be like, okay, here's where the error is. And it's going to fix this many tests or at least unblock this many tests. Yeah. So that was about a year of basically going through all of those test failures and figuring out, okay, why do they file, fail under Python 3 and just fixing them. So a lot of it was like, oh, this thing's supposed to be a string. Mm -hmm but it's bytes or vice versa, or they're calling dot items, but it's that used to be a list and it's not a list yeah, anymore. Yeah. yeah. So you can't index it. Yeah. So there's all sorts of nitty gritty things 
that you just have to go through them and fix them. Some of them are automatable, but like you really need to, but not everything is. And some of them are more subtle. Yeah. What was your target? Python 3 version? So we originally targeted 3.6. At the time, it was the newest version. When we started the project, it was like the newest version that we had available that was, that we were like, we're like, you know, we're sort of ready for, if you will. Yeah. During during the project, because obviously a long project, we were able to get 3.7 available. And it was actually really great because we were like, I don't know, um, less than a month out from when we were like, oh, we're going to start doing the rollout. And my coworker, Chris, who wrote DumbPyPI, was working on this project at the time. And he was like, you know what? I bet we could migrate this to Python 3.7. And I'm like, go for it. Let's see, let's see how hard it is. And he did it in like a day. So it was just like, it was just like, oh, you just upgraded it. It was like, I think there were like maybe a few, 3.7 does have like that one backwards incompatible incompatibility where it makes async a keyword. So there were like a few packages where you needed to like upgrade, but like he was able to do it like really quickly. And we were just sort of like, okay, and now we're going to roll out to 3.7. So that was nice that it was, it was sort of like we were working on 3.6 for most of it. We were, we switched to 3.7 near the end and it just sort of worked. Man, it, it sets the foundation for going to the next version after that, right? It's actually really weird. Chris is working on that again. He's going to be trying to upgrade us to, to 3.8 like this week, basically. Okay, cool. That's really, really excellent. What was the emotional state of you and the team as you were going through that year of fixing Nope, it's list of dick dot items, not list uh, dot items and or dictionary dot items, and like probably excited in the beginning, but you know, six months and what was that like? Or making progress, or like, oh god, it's still here, we're not done. I knew what it was going to be like going into it. Like I, I was like, I mean, not exactly, but like I, I was like, I know that it's going to be this thing where it's like it's, we're going to make some progress, and then we're gonna it's going to taper off because of the way that these things work, and but. It was definitely like, it was sort of like you were just sort of doing your tasks every day and each task in and of itself was not valuable, right? It was sort of like, oh, well, I fixed three tests today, you know, kind of thing. But ultimately I was able to see like where the end was. So for me, I was like, I was like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do it. I think not everyone on my team was necessarily like as sort of eye on the prize as I was, which is fine. Um, I think we ended up, we ended up swapping out. Basically, everyone on the team ended up working on it at one point or another, but it was only me and and uh, another one of my colleagues who who worked on it basically the whole time. So I think, you know, part of it was that some people were like, OK, I'll work on that a little bit, but I don't want to only work on that. And, and that's totally understandable. Like, I think yeah. that this type of work is kind of tedious. And this is sort of, it's sort of like uh, this is another argument against monoliths is sort of saying, like, if you have to do this when you need to do these, these type of migrations, mm -hmm. it becomes really punishing on software engineers. Like if you haven't done linting ever, <laughs> yeah. and then five years into it, you like, oh, let's get see what's wrong with you. You're on the lunch, you're like 100,000 years. Like, you know what? We're not doing that. We're just we're just going to ignore those. Let's <laughs> just stay. Because you can't just stop and go do 100,000 fixes. And this is, there's more value on the other side of this. So it's, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it must have been, felt pretty good to get it all done though. It really did. I mean, it was, it's sort of weird how these projects work is that like, you're sort of like, you're doing the work, you're doing the work. And then like one day you're just sort of like, and we're done. And it's been a year and a half of my life, you know, <laughs> like, but it's exciting. It was, I had multiple people tell me, they said to me, Hey, it's so cool that you, that, you know, we were able to do that because I never thought it would happen. Yeah, It's kind of amazing to do something that some people are like, this won't ever happen. But it, and it did, it happened and we made it happen. And I think that that was, um, you know really great. Let's talk a little bit about how you were able to 
to run this on Python 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You basically create two virtual environments, one from each setup and then or each version, and then run tests there, try it out there? Yep, that's basically it. I mean, there is a technique to having like code that runs under Python 2 and 3, which is that, you know, you basically have to make sure that you're using compatibility layers. And the, we use 6 for that. I That was something that me and most of the people on my team had some pretty significant um, experience doing because that's basically how we wrote all of our like libraries, our internal libraries, and and actually a lot of our open source ones as well. Because you know you want for a long time there you were like okay I want to have Python two and three compatibility. So having code that works under both was like pretty normal. Yeah, making sure that that code is sort of can run under Python two and three, and then building the virtual one. There was a little bit of nuance or like a, there was a snag there, which is that like something that comes up every once in a while when you're doing this kind of stuff. And this still, this is still a thing that happens to this day is you have, you have to deal with backport packages. So there's like the futures backport, which was uh-huh. the concurrent, which like concurrent futures was added in might've been 3.0. I don't remember exactly what version of Python 3, Python it was added in. And then there was like a few other backports. Functools 32's backport back for adding some of the stuff in Python 3.2's functools, like LRU cache, which is something we used a lot of. So those were both packages where we needed to actually install them in Python 2, because like there are packages somewhere in our, you know, depth tree that needs them. So what we had, what we ended up doing is we, was we made this like silly little, little script that it just sort of like took our requirements file and then filtered out the things that don't under, install under Python 3 and just spit out a new one. And that's the one build our Python 3 virtual env with. And so then gotcha. we have Python 2 and Python 3 virtual env, and they're like really similar, not exactly the same, but close enough. And then we can run run the tests against either one of them. Nice. Or, or And then eventually we would do, you know, do the rollout. Like it did sound like one of the challenges had to do with caching. And you have a, uh, a way in which you were using Pickle to stuff some results into Memcache. Is it Memcache? D or memcached, like past tense. I, I never know how to pronounce. I never know how to pronounce that that one right. I looked at their website like a year ago, or like I guess two years ago, or something when I was actually working on this. And I'm sure that I know. I'm <laughs> sure that I read it because it said it there. I remember, but I don't remember what the answer is. Yeah, no worries. I, so I'll, let's go with memcached. I'll call it memcached. So you were you were stu- previously you were pickling things. You were see pickling, but then that just became pickling. But at some point. It's one thing to say at the database query level, we'll deserialize and serialize an ORM object to match the schema. It's a whole nother to say the binary shape of this thing is the same across Python versions, which is highly unlikely, right? Which is pickle. It's basically impossible. Yeah. That was like the, yeah, that was one of the big problems that we had. So we were basically taking up, we were basically like, so we would pickle, there's like a cache key and then there's a cache value. We'd pickle both. And then the cache key, we would, we would like hash so that it could be like, you know, a specific binary uh-huh. sequence and then that would and then we'd we'd key into that in order to get stuff out of the uh out of the cache and but it turns out that for a multitude of reasons both the key like you said the key is not going to be binary the same so like that's one of the problems and the other problem is that there's a lot of like weirdnesses when you end up like either reading python 2 pickles in python 3 or reading Python 3 pickles and Python 2. Yeah, it seems like pickles are kind of meant to be transient. They're not meant to sort of be long-term storage because there's not a lot of guarantees around their parsability. Yeah. We were like, okay, well, what's what's a thing that we can do where we don't have to start 
being like, okay, now we have to write complicated serialization and, and stuff. And we were like, well, probably JSON, JSON will work. And so this is something I worked on for about three months or something was just migrating all of our caches to, uh, to use JSON instead of pickles. Yeah. You had this kind of fallback mechanism or this slow upgrade mechanism that said, try to get the JSON version from memcache. And if you got it, awesome, go with that. But then fall back and try to get the the binary pickle, but then immediately replace it with the the JSON version so that it just grows over time. I I mean, thinking about that much code and and that many services, there must just be a a ton of startup cost if you just kick all the servers over and clean the cache. We've never tried it. Uh, I think everyone's a little bit too scared, but it's definitely (laughs) like not something we wanted to do. And we wanted to be able to be like, okay, when we cut over to Python 3, we're not just going to lose all of our caches. I think this is actually a really great example of something we were discussing before the recording started of like doing a sort of like incremental upgrade. And one of the other things I didn't super get into with in my talk is that like one of the things that I felt was a really cool technique, and this really depends on whether or not this is worth it, depends on like how you end up, what the value of your like uptime is basically compared to your dev time. But we were, what I did is I, I sort of logged what I would do is I would like, for every cache, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna try to log this to JSON. And then if it failed, I wouldn't just fail, I'd like do the normal stuff, I'd do all the pickle stuff, whatever. But then I'd log it somewhere. And so that way I could just like look at this log and be like, oh, here's where my errors are. So it wasn't just like, oh, I would do, I would like ship changes and then like see if there were actual errors on production. And it's like, there's no errors on inspection. There's just errors in this log that I can like fix and like iterate on and no, you know, user ever sees a, sees a 500. Not everything's going to fit into that, but I think that that's a really, I think that's a really useful technique. Yeah, that is really cool because no matter how much testing you do on something this big, it's not until you really put it out there, you see that 100% sure it's going to hang together. But if it can fail silently in a way that people don't see, but you, you get notified about this and can start working on it, that's, yeah, that's really valuable. Another thing that you did that I thought was pretty clever was the way that you did the the rollouts where you were able to say, even though this is one huge monolith of code, that doesn't mean it breaks evenly, right? Once you get it past the, the parsability stage, there could be some URL endpoint that's going to fail if you request it and another that works totally fine, all right? So what you, were, what you all did is you created um, a reverse proxy in I was imagine Nginx. What what were you actually using here? So it's kind of Nginx. It, it's a uh, Open Resty, which is a framework where you can write plugins for Nginx okay. in Lua. So you you can you can do some sort of you know general logic in that. Okay, so you were basically able to say you know, when you go to Yelp.com/slash/something or API.yelp.com or whatever it is. As far as a user, it's the same. But some of those URLs are hitting the Python three version of this large monolith app running and somewhere hitting the Python too. And you could move it URL, URL endpoint endpoint at a time, right? Yeah. Talk to us about that. That's pretty clever. Yeah. It, this was a super cool technique. So we already had the the reverse proxy layer. We had the routing service. This is something that we had built for just sort of consolidating a bunch of um, logic in a general place where like everything could rely on it. But it, it was a really great place for us to be able to put this logic as well. And I'm going to say, say him again, uh, Chris Keel on my, my colleague on my team came up with this idea as well. So it's, it's such a great idea and, and, and it applies, I think really generally, like you can just sort of say like, okay, 
anytime I'm doing some sort of rollout where the setup is such a what in such a way that like I can't like do it within my application. Like there's something about the application setup. You can if you have this external layer, then you can then you can pretty easily do it. And yeah, it was basically just sort of like, you know, we would have a configuration and it would say like, okay, this this like prefix endpoint or like this endpoint prefix would go to Python two or this one would go to Python three. And we can actually even be a little bit more granular than that. We could actually give it a percentage of the time. So basically like, you know, 20% of the time it goes to Python 2, 80% of the time it goes to Python 3. And so we could do these sort of slower rollouts if people wanted to be more careful. I see. So maybe it goes like, it's on Python 2. Now 1% of the traffic goes to Python 3. Is it dying or no? It it seems okay. It seems okay. All right. Now 20, now 80. Like you could like slowly move it over. So if it fails, at least it fails just for a few people and you can you don't even roll it back you just stop sending traffic there and fix it which is really good yeah yeah very clever and it certainly makes sense for large projects but it, what's great is it lets you start getting your python 3 version in production way earlier right you're not waiting on the last endpoint you just need the first endpoint i mean probably you didn't do this the very like <laughs> one URL works put it out there but like you yeah. could do it much sooner than you would otherwise right for various uh, sort of practical reasons we didn't do, we didn't want to actually start the rollout until we were like, oh, all of the tests pass under Python 3. Because sure. we didn't want people to be like, oh, I'm running my tests and they're not passing and that's bad. And I'm either going to like ignore them or try to fix them in a bad way and stuff like that. But like, I mean, it was like a two month process where we were like from the first endpoint to the last endpoint, it was like two months. And so okay. that was able, that was really nice because it was like, oh, we would detect issues and then we would, but we would keep rolling out other stuff and then, you know, the teams or we could try and fix the issues. And so very neat. Uh, that's, that's great. All right. Let's wrap this up. We're getting short on time here. You had some, some clear benefits, even though you went to Python 3.6, which I think you'll see those benefits again, if you go to 3.11. All right. But even so going from, where do you go from 2.7 to 3.6? We went from 2.7 to 3.7. 2.7 to 3.7. Right on. Okay, cool. And you said it got faster and used less memory. That's pretty good. I don't remember the exact numbers. It was in my talk. I stole them from your talk. 15 to 20% speed up and 20% less memory. That's that's a tangible. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I remember this is something I didn't mention in my talk, but I thought I think it's kind of interesting. So we have some stuff that is, you know, more CPU heavy, which we send to what we call VIP instances. So VIP containers have more memory and more CPU okay, allocated towards them. And so I remember I talked to someone who was involved in like doing a lot of that sort of like operational stuff. And it, and after that migration, they like looked at numbers and they were like, oh, we can now scale down the VIP to what the old normal one was. And the normal one is now scaled down even more. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so which was super cool. So it was like super good to do that. And, and I think that beyond just sort of like, oh, this like gave us this immediate or this gave us this like outcome. It's like we weren't going for this outcome, but I think it really shows how like this type of work, like if you're like, you know, I think very often it's easy to look at like base level infrastructure work is like, oh, well, it's just maintenance and you just need to do it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's not really benefiting anything. And it's like, no, like we did this and it like saved money on our bottom line, you know, and not necessarily everything is going to be like that. But like, I think that Thinking about base level infra- infrastructure is like 
it does have a benefit. It might not necessarily be obvious before you do it, but you know, this is an example of, okay, if you're doing your upgrades, you get to take advantage of all the really hard work that all of the people on the Python language team have done to make the, you know, make it more efficient and faster. Yep. And it probably opens up other possibilities. The previous show I just did, which not out yet, so you wouldn't know, but was talking about rough the the linter written in Rust for Python. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, you have this ability to integrate with more modern tools and modern languages. Like, oh, if we got to rewrite this section in, in Rust for that computation, it's trivial now, where probably it wasn't before, I would imagine. I haven't tried integrating Python T7 <laughs> with you know things like that, but I, I bet it's not as easy as the the new tools, you know? Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's leave it here. I think that's all the time we got to talk about it. But you know, you must be enjoying it. Enjoying work on the projects and the features more now. You can just kind of the world is your oyster again. Uh, yeah, I love using we the project that I've been working on actually lately is we've been adding a lot of type annotations internally. Mm-hmm. That's you know a Python three feature right there. So yeah, absolutely. You, you can use f strings. Mm-hmm. You can use type annotations. You can start using tools like MyPy, uh, not just standard type annotations, just for editors. But yeah, uh, it, Pydantic, for example, all, all those things. Right, very cool. All right, now before you get out of here, I got two questions. I always ask at the end of the show, if you're going to write some Python code, what editor are you using these days? I'm a Vim person. Do do a lot all my development in Vim. Right on. And then notable PyPI package. Give a shout out to Python Modernize, but anything that stands out you want to give a shout out to like that? I mentioned Python Modernize. Great, excellent tool for what it is. I also gave a shout out in my, uh, I gave a shout out to a couple other things in my talk but I think they're they're definitely worth giving a shout out to still, which is um, Pi Upgrade, which we mentioned earlier. It has a lot of really nice features, but one of the sort of other things is kind of the other half of Python Modernize is that it can take your sort of six shim filled code and turn it into sort of normal Python 3 code. And then another tool by the same same a former colleague of mine, Anthony Satilli, uh, is um, pre-commit. Uh-huh. Then Modernize is a pre-commit hook. Packrate is a pre-commit hook. That's a that's a thing that we use extensively internally. Super super nice to be able to like you know do all those sorts of things and 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 do it in an incremental way, which is something that was really valuable. And then the last one, this is just completely a random one, but I just love it. Is uh, more iter tools one of my favorite packages? We have like an internal package that has a lot of the like functions that are in more iter tools, but they're worse or like quirky in some way that I that I don't like, and so. That's something that was like when I first found out about it, I was like, oh, man, this is great. And and I think it, it's pretty popular now. But like, I think it's it's one of those things where it's just sort of like, oh, it's these all these little functions that you're like, oh, I could write that. And it's like you could, but you'd probably write it, you know, with bad edge cases or something. It's just it's a great, great library. And it's better if you don't have to write it. That's for sure. Yes. All right. Well, Ben, thanks for being on the show. Final call action. Maybe some other people are out there facing this transformation they got to do. Like I said, not actually Python 2 to 3, but you know, some major foundation in their code base to another. What, what do you tell them? Figure out a way to make it incremental. That's really, I think, the, the main takeaway for me is that incremental changes have multiple benefits. They make you less risky. You're able to do these types of changes in a way like where you don't necessarily have to be like, oh, we have to schedule two years of work. It's like, no, you can do, you can do it, you know, a chunk at a time when you have time. And also it just like generally make sure you have less errors. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here. It's been great to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Join Cox Automotive and use your technical skills to transform the way the world buys, sells, and owns cars. Find an exciting position that's right for you at talkpython.fm slash cox. Earn extra income from sharing your software development opinion at user interviews. Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.